The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. For whatever reason, God brought you our way today. We've been going through the book of Corinthians. We just started. We did an introduction. Then we spent three, two Sundays at least, on the introduction, uh, Paul's formal introduction, verses 1 through 9 in chapter 1. This is pretty meaty. It's Paul's typical greeting where he gives his name, he greets the church or the person in the name of the Lord, and then with uh, each letter he adds something real specific that he's probably going to talk about a little later in his letter to uh, these people. And so he did that with the Corinthians, and he emphasized unity in his formal introduction in verses 1 through 9. Uh, he was trying to remind the Corinthians uh, that they need to be united in Christ because uh, that's what it was that's what it meant in, in terms of being saved. You were saved into the body of Christ. A Christian is a part of the body of Christ. The Christian is a part of a family. You have many brothers and sisters, and you need to be united in that family. For after all, Christ is the head of the body. He's the head of the spiritual home, and we are all simply members of it. And God has saved us to unity and to fellowship. And so that was kind of his thematic reminder all throughout the first Nine verses, unity, 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 and it's all in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Get your eyes off of yourself uh, as he greeted the Corinthians because he has to deal with some severe problems regarding this church, and one of those was the problem of disunity or infighting. By way of reminder, the Apostle Paul planted, he started the church in Corinth around 50 A.D., came in from Athens and on a second missionary trip and was preaching the gospel, started out in the synagogue, and then moved out into the cities among pagans. And it was the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus was prophesied and promised in the Old Testament. Hundreds of years uh, were foretold by the prophets of his coming, who Jesus or the Messiah would be, what he would accomplish. Then he, in fact, did come, was born of a virgin of Mary, invaded the sinful world, lived 33 years of a perfect life. He never sinned, the only human to never sin in his lifetime. And the reason is, is because he was a human, but he was more than a human. He was God in a body, God in the flesh. So he was distinct from anybody in the history of the world. God incarnate, Emmanuel, should be his name, says Isaiah chapter 9. And that's what, or Isaiah chapter 7, actually, God among us, God in the flesh, God in the body. And so Jesus fulfilled that prophecy from Isaiah that God would literally come down and live and habitat among humanity as the God-man. He did that for 33 years. He did it sinlessly. He fulfilled Old Testament scriptures. He preached the gospel and he fulfilled his mission. And his greatest mission was very simple. He came to die in the place of sinners, to die as their substitute, to go to the cross and be executed as a criminal, even though he never did anything wrong, but he went there willingly. He actually planned his own execution in eternity past. You can imagine that. Went to the cross and was crucified on a Friday, hanging there for at least six hours one evening as God the Father from heaven poured out his full fury and wrath upon Jesus, not just physically tormenting him, but also spiritually tormenting and punishing Jesus who did nothing wrong, who came from the Father, and he did that to punish Jesus as a substitute for sinners who deserved the full fury of God's 
wrath. And then Jesus died on the cross. They buried him. He raised again from the third day. He ascended back into heaven. He lives and reigns on high as King of kings and Lord of lords. And today he is seeking after sinners to save them by his glorious gospel as the savior of the world. And he's doing it through the message called the gospel, the good news. And he's also doing it through his people called Christians through his body called the church. And so Jesus' work continues. And so that is the message that the Apostle Paul went into Corinth, which was a totally pagan city. They never heard this truth before, these Gentiles. They thought it was weird. In the words of Paul, they thought it was foolish, or the Greek word, moronic. This is not the typical philosophy of, that we're used to of Socrates and Aristotle. This is weird stuff, Paul. That was the reaction of some. Actually, some others, they got convicted by the Holy Spirit and they believed and recognized, yes, I am a sinner. That resonates with my soul. I can't save myself. I have no hope. I need a Savior. Tell me more about this, Jesus. And so many Corinthians responded over the course of a year and a half because that's how long the Apostle Paul was in the city of Corinth preaching this new, strange, profound, life-changing gospel. And then he started a church because he had enough people and he raised up uh, leadership in that church. And he stayed there for a year and a half and then he left to go work in other areas of ministry and to plant other churches. And a couple of years went by and while he is working in Ephesus, planting a church there, he gets word that things are not going well in Corinth, the church that he planted and that he left behind two years ago. They have a lot of problems and one of the greatest problems they have in that Christian church is division. And he heard it from at least four sources that we know of that are listed in the book of Corinthians or other New Testament books. And so Paul is overcome with distress. And there's a sense of urgency as he needs to address these people that he so dearly loves. He's the pastor. He considers them his sheep. And so he writes a letter to them, and that's called 1 Corinthians. He wrote it from Ephesus and had it sent to them to try to address immediately these problems that they were having Division, among other things. And so that takes us to uh, the book of Corinthians. Their greatest, I mean, they had a lot of problems there in Corinth, but I think one of the greatest problems they had overall in the church of Corinth was division, personal division. They had problems with some theology. They had some problems with uh, immorality, true. But Paul spends the first four chapters of Corinthians addressing specifically the issue of division and factions they have in the church. Then he comes back to it in chapter 10. So that's probably one of the main problems they had in the church was division, infighting, cliques. You might be thinking, well, I thought all Christians were supposed to get along. I thought Christians were supposed to be friendly with each other. I didn't know Christians were supposed to fight. Well, they're not supposed to. That's sinful. Well, then maybe they weren't really Christians. No, yeah, they were. Jesus, greatest pastor there ever was. Only senior pastor that ever existed according to 1 Peter 5. He's the chief shepherd. And he pastored 12 guys for three years. And the Gospels tell us those guys were always fighting and bickering with each other. And Jesus at times had to stop, pause, shake his finger at them, and remind them that they need to love each other in Christ and not be divisive and factious with one another. So uh, Jesus' little congregation was subject to division. The Apostle Paul, greatest Preacher and pastor and apostle there ever was. His congregation, his sheep were subject to or vulnerable to division. 
So it would be true with every church since then for the last 2,000 years. And so every church on planet Earth today struggles from one degree to another with division. I'm going to say this uh, repeatedly uh, as we go on, and I've said it many times, that Satan, who is real, he is alive, he's demonic, there's nothing good about him, he's invisible, he's power, powerful, he's a fallen angel, he hates God, he hates Christians, he hates Jesus, he hates the truth, he hates the Bible, he's a destroyer, he never sleeps, he never slumbers, he has minions called demons, He is hell-bent on attacking the church. He is hell-bent on attacking Christians. And although he is powerful and although he is highly intelligent, he is quite simplistic in his goals. And what he does is he attacks the church primarily in three ways. He attacks the theology of the church, what we teach and believe. He attacks the purity of the church. That's our moral behavior. And he attacks the unity of the church, those three things. Theology, purity, unity. I think you can put every conceivable problem in a church under one of those three categories or headings. And Satan is at the forefront of all of it. Fanning the flames of all of those. uh, And humans with their sin contribute as well. And so Corinth, in terms of their theology and purity and unity, I think one of their greatest problems was definitely their unity. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, after finishing the introduction and his very nice, sincere, cordial, friendly, pastoral introduction and greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he now, look at verse 10, because we're covering verse 10, 11, 12, and 13. Paul now begins the formal part of his letter. He begins now addressing the problems. Here is why I'm writing. Paul is writing this letter to be a problem solver. This isn't just a friendly letter. There's a deliberate effort here to address and solve problems. And so we're going to look at verses 10 through 13 today as he just gets right to it of the problem at hand. Let's go ahead, follow along as I read verses 10 through 13. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Wow, that's hard to do. Let me start over. That you all agree, but that there be that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this that each of you is saying, I am of Paul. And others, I am of Apollos. And others, I am of Cephas. And others, I am of Christ. Verse 13. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Okay, we're going to stop there. Let's go ahead and look at this passage and kind of take it apart in its context. I came up with just three principles to kind of help you think through it logically. The title of the sermon today I put there is Division in the Church. That comes right out of the text. Verse 10, division. Divisions. Verse 11, quarrels. 
This is the New American Standard. Verse 13, divided. That's the context. He's addressing a problem. The problem is that there's division in the church. Three points here. The first point regarding divisions and what to do about them from Paul's point of view to a Christian church. First is the remedy for division. That's what he deals with first. He first talks about the remedy. What is the remedy for division in a church? Well, it's pursuing divine unity. That's verse 10. How do you get rid of division? Spiritually speaking, as Christians, you pursue divine unity. You can apply that to the church. You can apply that, by the way, if you have a Christian home, you can apply that in your home. When you have division in your home, you have to pursue spiritual unity and also in your personal relationships as well if, between uh, believers. So let's go ahead and look at the remedy for division that Paul gives. It's in verse 10. It's, it is compound. It's not superficial. There are several things that need to be considered before you can have unity when you have division. Speaking of this division that is the topic at hand for the first four chapters of Corinthians, in the middle of verse 10, look at the word divisions. Divisions. The Greek word schismata, which is where we get our English word schisms. Schisms. What are schisms? Schisms, they're, they're divisions between people. They are relational divisions. Uh, in the context of 1 Corinthians, he is talking about, he's not talking about a church split where it's two big groups. He's talking about just little pockets of division all over the place. Uh, cliques, splintered groups. They weren't hidden. They weren't behind the scenes. They were open. They were public. They were manifest. They were manifest primarily through the words that the people spoke. They were actually speaking up, verbalizing slogans, identifying their clique in the church at Corinth, among of which were, I am of Paul. Well, we are of Cephas. Well, we are of Apollos. Well, we are of, we're the most spiritual. We are of Christ. And Christians do this. We have our slogans that divide us even within one organization or one church. I am a Pastor Cliff. I am a Pastor Bob. I am, you know, on and on. That's within a church. Or even I've seen within a church, I am of NAS translation. Well, I am of NIV. Ooh, you're not very spiritual. Well, I am of King James Version only. Really? This goes on in churches. It's not any different than what was going on here. They're forming phony allegiances that are superficial and on a human level, taking away and robbing the glory from where the loyalty should go, and that is to Christ and only to Christ. And it's creating division. So we've got a problem with division in the church. And Paul talks about the remedy first thing. What is the remedy? Spiritual unity. Let's go ahead and look at... Uh, he emphasizes three things to consider to go about getting a remedy for division in the church. This is helpful for me as a pastor. This is helpful for our elders. And this should be helpful for every member of our church. Because... As a pastor and as the elders and as members of your church, one of your goals should be to preserve the unity of the body of Christ because that is what God has called us to do all over Scripture. We know what Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed. Do you want to be blessed? I do. One of the clear ways to be blessed is to be a peacemaker. To be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. 
You want to be blessed by Jesus and you want to do something that pleases Jesus, Jesus, be a peacemaker. That's what this is talking about. The Corinthians were not peacemakers. They were the exact opposite. We, I read how the Thessalonians were commended for their love for one another. Paul did not commend the Corinthians for their love. They didn't have love for one another. They lacked love. Hence, chapter 13 in Corinthians. We'll look at it. But the three things that Paul's going to emphasize, but follow along as I read verse 10, he says, now, now he's making a, a transition. Okay, I greeted you. I love you. You are my spiritual children. I trust that you are believers. I trust you're going to listen to me. I trust you love Christ. I trust you really believe in the gospel. But we got to talk about something and we got to get it right. Now I exhort you. Now I exhort you. Not now I command you. Now I exhort you. Parakaleo to come alongside. Come, that's the imagery. It's when you go up to, it's like a nice, a good coach, but a firm coach who goes up to a player who just blew it, like a football player who just fumbled or whatever, or a quarterback, and the coach goes up alongside and whispers in his ear and walks with him, encouraging him while at the same time correcting him, admonishing him, or telling him how to do it right the next time. Coming up alongside and whispering in the ear, and that is the compound Greek word used right here. Now I exhort you. I want to come alongside of you. In other words, I'm not going to look down my nose and talk to you and insult you and shame you. I don't want to do that. I want to come alongside. I want to come alongside as a fellow brother in Christ. Yes, I am an apostle. Yes, I am an elder and a pastor. But I am also just like you. I am a sinner saved by grace, walking with feet of clay. And he wants to come alongside and encourage. And by the way, this is the same word that is used to identify the very name of the Holy Spirit. He is the paraclete, the paracoleo, the one that comes alongside and comforts us and guides us. And that's what he's doing here. Paul being very pastoral here, not condescending. Now, I want to come alongside you and tell you. And then he says, brethren, don't ignore that word. It's very specific when Paul uses it. Brethren, brothers, it doesn't just mean males. It's a collective term, and it was in Paul's day. It means literally brothers and sisters in Christ. Family, hey, family members. He's reminding them once again they're part of something bigger than themselves. You are part of a family. You're not a Lone Ranger Christian. You have to live with others. You have to live in harmony. You have to live in peace. And by the way, I am your brother. I am one of you. I need to hear this message just as much as you do. So Paul, coming down on their level with great humility, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, reminding them you're fighting with each other. This faction over here is fighting with that faction. Do you realize that you are brothers in Christ? You are sisters in Christ? We need that reminder. If you're a parent and you have more than one child, you know that's a strategy you need to use, or at least you should. Why are you fighting with your sister? Why are you fighting with your brother? We are one family. These are all our offspring. We love you all the same. They are your blood. Change your attitude in light of the family relationship. Be gracious. Now I exhort you, brethren and family members, And then he goes on and he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's his authority. This isn't just Paul's opinion. This is in the name of Jesus Christ, whom you say you believe, whom you say is your Lord, whom you say you are committed to serving and submitting to. That's the authority by which we speak. Paul had to say this, I think, also in light of the fact that there was a faction. There were three other factions. There was a faction that said, I am of Paul. There was the Paul faction, but there are three others that weren't identifying with that faction. And there's a reason for that. There was the Apollos faction. Well, we are of Apollos. In other words, well, we're not in the Paul group. 
And then there's the Peter group. We are of Cephas. We are of Peter. We're not in the Paul group. So appropriately, so Paul says, I am saying these things not as Paul the guy, who when I did come to Corinth, uh, some of you were embarrassed by me. Some of you thought I was weak and a wimp and trembling. He's going to tell us that later in the book of Corinthians. Paul was not any rhetoric. He wasn't trained in rhetoric the way that they were expected, the way they grew up in that pagan Greek society. Paul says that explicitly in chapter 2. Also, we get indications from Galatians and other books that his physical appearance wasn't real pleasing. Some people were actually embarrassed by him. Possibly an ailment that he had with his face or his eyes. And So when he came and he was talking, he wasn't necessarily this persuasive, eloquent, uh, great speaker. So some of these people, when they saw other guys like Apollos, was like, oh man, Apollos, he is top dog. He's way better than Paul. So he has to appeal to reminding them, I am saying this as an apostle of Jesus Christ. It is divine revelation. It is binding authority. You need to heed what I'm about to say. And so then he goes on with his three main points about combating division. So how do we as well combat division and bring about a remedy in the church? Well, first he says, it's in how you talk and how you speak. Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. That you all agree, says the New American Standard and the ESV. But that is not what the Greek text literally says. They neglect a Greek word for to speak, lego. For whatever reason, the New American Standard people and the ESV people didn't put it in there. The NIV, bless the NIV, here's where they got it right on this verse. And the King James... The King James actually does the best literal translation of the phrase here. Um, And the King James includes that word for speak. And it's speak the same thing. The emphasis is on verbal speech. NAS and ESV just say agree. Well, you can agree without talking. You can agree without verbalizing. The emphasis here is on that word lego. To speak, to say, to articulate verbally and out loud, because Paul knew this was a hang-up and a preoccupation of the Corinthian Christians. He introduced that in verse 5. Look at your Bible if you haven't. In everything, this is when he was talking nice to him. In everything as Christians, you are enriched in Jesus Christ, amazingly, in all what? In all speech. Because that was their self-profession. They were proud of their speech. He's going to talk about this exhaustively in chapters 12 through 14. Because they emphasized, highlighted, made a priority of the speaking gifts over the serving gifts. They were all proud of speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues and in prophecy and the word of knowledge. These were all verbalized, showy gifts. And so he comes right to the heart of the matter. Their greatest strength is their greatest weakness. You are putting too much emphasis on your giftedness of speech and and so he's going right to the matter here. Yeah, you got gifts of speech. You, you do a lot of talking. You do a lot of spiritual speaking. But it is creating division in the way you do it in the church. And so he says we need a remedy there. You need spiritual unity. And the first way you need to attack this division and bring about unity is be mindful of how you speak. And so literally in the Greek text he says, as a result, you need to speak the same thing. As opposed to speaking in different slogans. Speak in the same slogan. Speak in a unified, harmonious slogan. We are sinners saved by grace. 
like a wretch that said in the song, a wretch. That is not a word we use today. That is not a pretty word. Do you know what a picture of a wretch looks like? It is ugly. I don't know what you thought as you were singing that song. Saved a wretch like me? Were you offended? I'm not a wretch. How dare that song? I'm skipping that word when I sing. No, it's, it's accurate. It's biblically picturesque. We are wretched sinners. They need to be speaking the same slogan. They need to have the same identity in how they verbalize and communicate and talk, whether it's behind somebody's back or up front in the lobby, the hallway, or in the congregation. We need to speak the same way. And primarily it's speak the truth. Because that's not what they were doing. They were speaking in factions. It's kind of like, this is how they were doing it today in our day, if you're a football fan or a basketball fan, and it was like they were taunting one another. Taunting one another. Peyton Manning, he's the best quarterback. No, he isn't. Tony Romo is. And everybody knows that's a joke. But anyway, <laughs> then you, you banter back and forth regarding your favorite college football team, and people are going at it, and the fans are getting fanatical. That's what fan is. It's short for fanatical. You're a crazy, wild fan. Verbalizing. Insane. You dress like a wild man on game day. And you don't care. And they're verbalizing and creating division on a superficial fun level. But this was on a real spiritual level. But it's the same thing. they got their little flags, their little t-shirts, their their. Peter t-shirt number 15 and here's my Apollos number 7 shirt and here's my Paul headband. And he's saying, no, this needs to stop. That's where we need to start right now. Close thy mouth. That's where to start, really. Book of Proverbs says the wisest person in the room is the person that bites their lip half the time, doesn't say anything. In a multitude of words, there's a multitude of sin. So the first thing Paul realizes, man, we we got to do more than damage control. We have got to shut people's mouths of this divisive thing they're saying. And one word that Paul emphasizes in verses 10 through 13 is the word same. It's just a little pronoun. Looks insignificant, but he repeats it at least four times. The same, the same, the same, the same. You have got to get on the same page. Consider yourself in a choir and you are singing the same words and the same music and you're making beautiful harmony. You've got to get on the same page. And you've got to get on the same page first and foremost of how you're, you're articulating and viewing things as a Christian and in the church. Look what you're promoting. You're not promoting harmony. You're promoting division and disunity. So that's point number one. Speak the same things. Say the same things that are conducive to truth that promote harmony, and as a result, you will be a blessed peacemaker. In order that you all agree. Say the same thing so that you bring about harmony is what he means. In order that there will be no divisions or no schisms among you. Clicks. Then he goes on, well, what else? We need to speak the same things in truth that are peacemaking. In other words, not... You don't need to be accentuating your differences. We'll get to that. But he goes on after that and he says uh, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete. Says the New American Standard, that you be made complete. The NIV says, but that you be perfectly united. And the ESV says that you be united. 
those none of those are specific enough of what it says. It's a very common word that Paul uses. Katartizo, um, you don't need to remember that. But it's used throughout the New Testament in very specific cases. It was a verb that was uh, used to talk about mending a fishing net that had holes in it. It became unproductive and you mend it, to you restore it, you fix it so it can be used for good. It was also used to restore a broken bone. You doctors out there know how important that is. Before You can't just let a broken bone heal without setting the bone, getting it back in place. That is the exact word used here. There, some restoration needs to go on. Some damage has been done in your church. So the word complete and perfect, that, that doesn't give you the imagery of the verb that Paul is using. We, we've got problems. Damage has been done. People have been hurt. Christ has been divided. Feelings are sour. Seeds of the flesh have been planted that are probably going to sprout and bear fruit if we're not careful. So we need some restoration and healing and immediately like a doctor would in an ER. We've got to reset the bone. We've got to get back on track. So that's the terminology he's using for the purpose. So it's for the purpose of restoration. Start talking the same way in truth. Stop speaking your slogans that divide. And we need to combat this division in order that you can be made whole again or be restored or reset on the way to healing for the purpose of restoration. And then, yes, then you'll be made complete. So you've got to be honest and recognize the damage that's been done. Then finally he goes on at the end of verse 10 in the remedy. So we speak the right way. We are proactive in fixing the damage that has been done and resetting. And then the last part of the verse, he says, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Those two last two phrases, in the same mind and the same judgment, have to do with how we think. So you've got to speak the right way and stop speaking the wrong way. You've got to have, have an attitude of restoration and healing. And then now you've got to change your thinking, Corinthians. You are thinking wrong. Well, how did they think? They were arrogant. They looked down at fellow Christians next to them who had different gifts. See, they emphasized the differences. Just because it was a different gift, it was inferior. So that's what he's saying. You've got to think the same way and come to the same conclusions and the same goals and same purposes with your fellow Christians. So watch and adjust how you talk. Watch and adjust how you think Christian, go to your book of Philippians because Paul says the same thing. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. He's saying being of the same mind is really what he's saying and that's what it is in Philippians chapter 2. Starting at verse 1, I'll just read the two verses there. This is almost identical. It's synonymous in terms of the truth that Paul is telling the Philippians that they needed to continue to practice. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ... If you identify with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, there is common ground to build on. And the common ground you need to build on as Christian is the following. Not the negative, not the superfluous, insignificant, minor differences that are natural. But your commonality in Christ. If there is any consolation of love. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit. If any affection and compassion, verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Think the same way. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. There it is. The same mind. Think the same way. So whenever we have a problem in the church, it usually goes back to how you think. 
Somebody's got a, a struggle, a problem, a sin, and you sit down with them, eventually you're going to get back to how they think on that matter. Are they thinking wrong, wrongly? Probably. They've got to get back on track. And so that is the remedy. We've got to change immediately how we act. We've got to change immediately how we think, and we've got to do it for the purpose of restoring the damage we've done in our congregation by virtue of our self-centered compromise and sin. Go on to point number two, which is verse 11, as Paul deals with division in the church. After giving the remedy for division, he talks about the report. Well, where did Paul hear about this? He's uh, 200 miles away over in Ephesus. you got to take a, a boat to get back. Where did he hear this? Where did he get this message that the Corinthians were divided? Well, that's the report of the report of division, growing public reputation. Corinthians were getting a reputation for being divisive. Verse 11, for I have been informed concerning you, for I've been informed about your divisions. Wow. I mean, isn't that embarrassing? There's that church plant in Corinth. What are they known for? Not their love, not their service, not their giving. They are known for their division. Isn't that sad? What are you known by? What am I known by? What is GBF known by? It's kind of a scary question. What is our reputation? The church of Corinth right now, what they're known by? Division, among other things that are sinful. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, brothers and sisters, family members, by Chloe's people, by Chloe's household. It's just, it, literally, it's just by those of Chloe, those who belong to Chloe. Who was Chloe? That was somebody that Paul knew, and that was somebody that the Corinthians knew. This is probably a significant woman in the church at Corinth. That's, that's why he doesn't need to say anything other than her name. There are just some people like that. You just invoke their name and it demands everybody's attention and respect. Oh, yeah, we know Chloe. It could very well be that Chloe was a wealthy lady and they had church in her house, which was very common. And because she was a wealthy lady with a big house and a big meeting room and conducted church services there, probably had Paul preaching there when he planted the church there. Wonderful, beautiful, godly woman who hosted that. And being a wealthy woman, she probably had slaves and no doubt she had uh, children or family members as well and laborers who worked for her and in her home. Or maybe it was just people who came to uh, her house for church on a regular basis and they were the leaders in the church, whoever it was. Some of these people who were in Chloe's house managed to get over to Paul and inform him and tell him that we got a problem at Corinth. There's division going on. It is devastating, Paul, and you need to deal with it and quickly. By the way, it's not just we heard from Chloe. It is from Chloe's plural people that is very very important uh in your new american standard it says for i have been informed the greek word literally is it has been shown to me that is a legal word used in the courtroom so informed that really doesn't do justice it's it has been which some translations do say that it has been shown to me it has been laid out in terms of reliable evidence that is substantial, that is binding, that meets the standard of even the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy of evidence. This is not just hearsay. There's a plurality of people. It's not just Chloe. It is Chloe's people. The testimony of two or three witnesses validates this as legally legit. As a result, Paul can act on this. This is reputable, first-hand eyewitness Evidence. It could very well be that even the messengers that brought this message to Paul were part of Chloe's people. But there is no mistake. This is sufficient evidence enough for Paul to take issue with it and to get their hearing. I've heard from Chloe's people. I've heard from Chloe. And as a result, he's going to act 
on it. I've been informed, I've been shown the evidence concerning your division, my brothers and sisters, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. He uses another specific but different word than divisions. Again, a manifestation of how they were fighting. You can fight in a lot of different ways. You can fight by not saying a word to somebody. Did you know that? Have you ever heard of the cold shoulder? Yeah, that, that reigns and runs supreme in human interaction and it shows up in the church all the, all the time. It's probably been in existence today at GBF. Not one word is said, but it's just as divisive. But Paul is emphasizing the verbal manifestation of this divisive sin by virtue of the two words that he uses regarding division and then this word in verse 11, quarrels. Very specific word. Uh, used in other uh, contexts, meaning wranglings, people verbally wrangling one with one another, debating with one another with a contentious attitude and spirit. They're not asking questions to get a resolution or to get information they need and then be on their way. They're debating for the sake of debating. It's the war of words. It's verbal strife. It has an emotional component and nuance to it as well. Hot disputes. This very word is used in Galatians 5 verse 20 by the Apostle Paul saying that this word and its manifestation and its practice and existence in the church is of the flesh. It is not of the spirit. It is sinfully driven and perpetuated. And that's what's going on here in Corinth. So it needs to stop. I heard about this from Chloe. It's legit. I believe it. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. I want, if you got your uh, Bible, go to Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17. So you could go through the whole book of Proverbs, especially starting at like chapter 12 and the rest of the book of Proverbs, and just read through it and just be reminded of so many wonderful Proverbs that talk about. Uh, taming our tongue, refraining from arguments, self-control of the mouth, self-control of the words, being a good listener. But I want you to look at Proverbs eighteen seventeen, Because again, Paul hears a report. By the way, he, this is, he didn't just hear this from Chloe's people. He heard it from Chloe's people. But it, we also know that he heard it from another guy in Corinth named Fortunatus and his two buddies who were from the church of Corinth as well. We also know that he heard something from a letter that they sent. That's in 1 Corinthians 5. So there are three sources right there. It's very likely as well that he heard it from Timothy. So there are four conduits of information coming to him, but he found that the Chloe report to be significant, meeting the requirement of the testimony of a plurality of reliable eyewitnesses. And the reason I want to stop on this point in Proverbs 18, verse 17, is we need to be reminded of when to act and when not to act, when to believe something, when not to believe something, or how to investigate a matter when allegations are made. In this day and age, it is commonplace, just in the world and also in the church, that you, if you hear an allegation, that person is automatically guilty. And if you think about it, you have fallen prey to that. I have as well. On the news, President so-and-so has been suspected of whatever, or some famous movie star, or some athlete has been suspected of whatever, automatically we believe it. We don't know anything about the person. We were not eyewitnesses. We don't have a stitch of evidence. Just merely there's an allegation or a supposed allegation guilty as charged. That's unbiblical. That is wrong. And when we carry that over into the church, it is destructive. It is divisive. So that's why the Apostle Paul, the plurality of witnesses that have been brought, there's a plurality from Chloe's household. 
There's a plurality in the message from Fortunatus and his two brethren. There's a plurality to the witness in the letter that he received from the Corinthians based on 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 7, 1. And as a result, this is just a good reminder. Proverbs 18, 17. The first to plead his case seems right. What is that talking about? That's talking about a tattletale. Mommy, so-and-so did this. Then the temptation is, oh, how dare they? I'm going to give that child a whooping. It's like, wow, you haven't even talked to the other child yet. You don't even have the other side of the story. It could be that the tattletale is also a liar, liar. So that's what this is addressing, Proverbs 18, 17. The first to plead his case. See, you can see the tattletale running before the other sibling gets there. I'm going to get to mom and dad first. The first to plead his case seems right. Until another comes and examines him. In other words, they examine the evidence. They actually get the other side of the story. That's why in a courtroom you take a vow. Do you tell, promise to tell the truth? The whole truth. That's the other side of the story. And nothing but the truth. The whole truth. That's why judges are so important. Not just lawyers. Lawyers, they're, they're in the first part of chapter uh, 18, verse 17. They're the first to plead their case. The judge, a wise judge, he does all of verse 17. Yeah, I'll let you hear you plead your case. I'm also going to let them plead their case. And I'm going to weigh the evidence and render, hopefully, a wise decision. We need to do that. So when you go complaining and whining about somebody or whenever we do that, you've got to remember we've got to allow whoever has to render the judgment, they have to hear the whole story first. And that's, that is the job of a pastor and an elder. As we have to monitor, deal with, bring about unity among division with our saints, we can't just hear one side of the story, the first person to complain and make an allegation. We've got to hear the other side of the story, weigh the evidence, pray for God's wisdom, and then hopefully render a righteous decision. That is so so important. So anyway, uh, this, the report was coming from reliable sources so that the Apostle Paul could act as an apostle on the authority of Jesus Christ as the pastor of that church. So the remedy, division that needs restoration. The report from liable witnesses, reliable witnesses from Chloe's people. And finally, look at number three, the reason for the division. Why were they having division? Paul's going to cut right to the chase in the heart of this and also its manifestation. Well, the reason for division that he's addressing here is they were fostering religious cliques. Religious cliques. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Peter. I am of Christ. Those are religious cliques. What is this? This is the cult of personality. The personality cults. We have the personality cult alive and well in the church of Jesus Christ in 2013. It is rampant all over the world. As a matter of fact, it's been, it's been going on for 2,000 years. Why? Because this is just second nature to sinful people. By nature, we want heroes. By nature, we make heroes. Heroes aren't always bad. Sometimes it's good to have a hero. But you've got to have a hero in the right way. You've got to have the right hero. You've got to have a godly hero if you're a Christian. And there's a thin line sometimes between a hero and an idol. And esteeming humans here when the only esteem that should be rendered is to Jesus Christ and Him alone. Jesus is Lord. He is the only Lord. Well, the Corinthians lost sight of that. They were impressed by personalities and humans and eloquence and because that was a part of their culture. They carried this over from their Corinthian pagan culture. That's what Corinth was like. 
And Corinth was a cosmopolitan city, and it, it brought in that kind of worldly attitude regarding re, uh, esteeming humans at elevated levels. They came from really a caste system. There were higher levels and echelons of people that were to be esteemed and you were you awe over those people. And that was carried over into the Christian church. And by virtue of the fact that they're also fallen sinners, uh, that complicated the problem. So they want a hero and they're going to make an... Why do humans... Why do people have heroes? It'd be interesting to ask all of you, do you have any heroes? Who are your heroes? How much do you esteem those heroes? Are those heroes authorities in your life? Do you even know that hero? We have so many heroes today, we don't even know who they are. Movie stars, athletes, whatever. We know nothing about their character, how they live at home, how they treat their spouse, but they are our hero. And we have rampant idolatry in the cult of personality, not just in the world, but in the church, and that's what Paul was dealing with. There's nothing new under the sun. And as a result, this has great application for us today in our life and in our church. The cult of personalities. This is misplaced loyalty. This is idolatry. This is blatant idolatry. Look at 12 and 13. Now, I mean this. Here's the source of your divisions and quarrels. This is what I mean. That each of you, and he means by that, not every single person in the church, but every person that is a a part of this problem falls into these four main camps. And here's what you're doing. Each one of you is saying, is saying, present tense, ongoing, a pattern of life. This is characteristic of you. This is how you're known. You're not known as a follower of Jesus Christ. You're known as a loyal follower follower of a fallen human being. That's a problem. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul. And then there's another group in the Corinthian church saying, well, we are of Apollos. And the others are saying, well, I am of Peter. And then the last one says, I am of Christ. So you have at least four factions in the church. Maybe there was more. Misplaced loyalty. What is so despicable? There's a couple despicable things about it. The first one is, is Paul, Apollos, and Peter all loved Jesus Christ. And if Paul and Apollos and Peter, well, Paul, we know, when he heard about this, wow, there are people in that church that are loyal to me over and against being loyal to Peter and over against being loyal to my Lord Jesus Christ. That sickens me. I am not proud of you. I'm not going to be your poster child click of the Apostle Paul. I want nothing to do with you. Don't quote me. Don't change the name. Get another hero. So the Apostle Paul, the godly man that he was, he knew that was divisive and wrong. And, the, and Apollos would have believed the same thing. He was a man of God. He doesn't want a little click following him saying, rah, rah, Apollos. He wants people following and loving only Jesus. Because only Jesus is the Savior, only Jesus is the God-man, only Jesus is the one who saves, and only Jesus is the one who saved these fallen Corinthians. And that's what he says in verse 13. I cannot believe what I'm hearing in the church at Corinth that I planted. Has Christ been divided? Jesus Christ is the head of the church of His precious body. And you are dividing up and literally dismembering the beautiful unity of Jesus Christ and His precious body of Christ. We are the hand. We are the foot of the body. We are the mouth of the body. Emphasizing, again, differences. Emphasizing illegitimate differences. Not emphasizing legitimate commonalities of who they are in Christ. That's how you create division. You want to create division with somebody, whether it's your spouse or somebody in your family or somebody in the church. Just start emphasizing and thinking about and dwelling upon 
illegitimate differences, petty differences, and then you'll develop bitterness in your soul and you'll be condescending and you will judge your fellow brother or sister in Christ like the Corinthians were doing. And so Paul, that's why he used the word same four times in this passage. Don't think differently, think the same, the same, the same. And what is the same? It's the common ground that every Christian has. What is the common ground? Salvation in Christ. What is the common ground? We are all fallen sinners. We are all unworthy. We all deserve to be condemned. And God graciously redeemed us and saved us. And the common ground is we are all one, brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, who is the only head and the only one worthy of esteem and glory. Has Christ been divided? Wow, you're stamping on Jesus Christ, the Savior himself. You're undoing the very work that Jesus tried to do in saving. Jesus tries to save sinners and bring them in, into the fold, to unify, to bring harmony, to bring peace, to bring unity. And you're doing the very thing. You're undoing the work of Christ. Whether it's unwittingly or whatever, they were still undermining the very work of Christ. Has Christ been divided? I love this phrase. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Okay, you Paul group over there. Yippee! Did I die for your sins? No. Then what are you rooting my cheers for? I am not your Savior. Just just follow me. You know, follow the Apostle Paul on a missionary journey. You would have, if you got to know him personally, you would have concluded, wow, you know what? Paul's not so hot after all. You know what I concluded about the Apostle Paul? I concluded that he he's a sinner. He does dumb things. He does sinful things. And he sometimes he does things he knows he shouldn't do. Sometimes he does things he knows he should do, but he, and he wants to do, but he can't. And then he does, and that's for, that is Romans chapter 7, where he's honest and gives his biography. I have concluded that the Apostle Paul is the worst of all the apostles. Why do I say that? Because that's what he said about himself. I have concluded that the Apostle Paul is the worst of all sinners. How do I know that? Because that's what he said in 1 Timothy 1. That's his biography. That's who the true Paul would be. And that's why Paul said, I did not die for you. I'm not a worthy savior. I am a sinner who needs God's grace. And it comes only in Jesus Christ. Paul was not crucified for you. What are you people thinking? Or were you baptized in my name? I didn't baptize any of you. Don't attach any allegiance to me whatsoever. I came and gave you just the gospel that Jesus gave to me. It's not my gospel. It's the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus. That's what saved you. Nothing else. His grace and his grace alone. So it's these religious cliques, the cult of personality, misplaced loyalty, idolizing human beings beyond what is legitimate or what we deserve as pathetic sinners, really. So we need to examine ourselves. By the way, just here's some interesting thoughts that some people have written over the ages and I tried to glean from Scripture. What, what were the characteristics of these four cliques? The Paul clique, the Apollos clique, the Peter clique, and the Christ clique. What attracted to them? To these, it is very possible this. Uh, Paul, the Paul group, they were loyalists to the founding institution. These were the traditionalists in the church. We've always done it this way. That's what our bylaws have said for 32 years. That's what our first and founding pastor said. Hey, he was the pastor for 36 years. And they were committed to the foundation of that institution. Sometimes blindly. He was our first pastor. I feel sorry for a lot of pastors who go into a pulpit and a ministry in a church where they have to follow on the heels of a long line of beloved pastors because you'll never hear the end of it. Well, pastor so-and-so used to do this and pastor so-and-so used to say this. And then the new guy has to hear that for years and years and years. I've seen it in churches. It's not helpful. It, you begin to think, wow, that pastor, he was made of marble. Wow, that's amazing. So that was the Paul group, possibly. The Apollos group, well, we know from Acts chapter 18, there's a lot of very specific 
adjectival phrases that define and explain Apollos. By the way, Apollos was not one of Paul's buddies. Apollos was independent of Paul. Paul goes in, he plants the church, he leaves. Apollos comes in. He stays there while he becomes influential. He becomes uh, an admired teacher and influence and voice of truth in the church of Corinth. And he actually had sway over many of those people when he left. And what was different about Apollos than Paul? It says in Acts 18 that Apollos was eloquent. That is the exact opposite of what Paul said about himself in 1 Corinthians 2 when he said, I was not eloquent. Stumbled over my words. I'm not a rhetorician. Not polished in the Greek ways. Uh, I'm not honed in my delivery. I wasn't trained in that school. I'm not an Alexandrian like Apollos was. Totally different school of delivery and methodology. So the Apollos group, what were they big on? They were big on the delivery. Pastor McManus, sometimes um, your sermons put me to sleep. Yeah, but did you hear what I said? Did you hear the content? Man, tell me at least the content was good. I'll give you my notes. And people do that today. Boy, did you hear this pastor? Did you hear this preacher? Boy, he gives me warm fuzzies. Boy, he gives me goosebumps. Boy, he can deliver. Boy, he's got a great vocabulary. He never says, uh, blah, 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 blah. We do that. We do that. That's Apollos. Erudition. Rhetorician. Delivery. Polished. And then there was the Peter group. Well, who were the, well, it could be Peter, unlike Apollos, he was not an Alexandrian, so he didn't have this tainted Greek influence. And he was a Jew. I mean, oh, he's pure. These were the purists in the church. Uh, at least the saved Jews, probably, or the proselytes in Corinth, maybe, who knew Peter was the first apostle. He was the head apostle. Uh, also, man, Peter, he walked and talked with Jesus for three years. Paul, Paul never walked and talked with Jesus. Paul was an enemy when Christ was on earth and shortly thereafter. So it could be that these were the purebred Jews in the bunch. And then finally, there was the Christ group. Uh, th this was the snobby group. These were the elitists. They thought they were the most spiritual of all. We are of Christ. I mean, how can you top that? Because you can't. Because Jesus is God. He is in a body. He is perfect. He puts Paul, Apollos, and Peter to shame. He saved those three sinners. The Christ group. Well, taken to an extreme, and why this is illegitimate, they focused the wrong way on things about Christ, and they focused only on Christ to the chagrin or disparaging Paul and Apollos and Peter, who were faithful servants of Christ. So when Paul spoke as an apostle, Jesus spoke. They were synonymous in terms of the truth being communicated. Corinthians in this group lost sight of that. These were like the modern day Thomas Jeffersons. Thomas Jeffersonians. Thomas Jefferson wrote a Bible. It's called the Jefferson Bible. And it includes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he got rid of everything else because he wasn't too hip on Paul. I just want Jesus. And you can go to a public library today and get the Thomas Jefferson Bible. He was the purist. We need the morals and the ethics of Jesus. By the way, Thomas Jefferson took his scissors and cut out every miracle of Jesus he could find, including the resurrection, because he didn't believe in miracles. We just need the morals and ethics. So... Uh, or maybe this is the Christ group or the hyper-dispensationalists. Because there are pockets of hyper-dispensationalism that exist today in the church where they believe in Jesus and everything about it. They believe in the four Gospels and everything about it. But they are not, again, they are not big on Paul. And they kind of make categories and distinctions. Jesus' words are more authoritative. Uh, that's why Jesus' letters are read in your Bible, the red letter edition. Those are more weighty than Paul's words. His are, letters are, I don't know, green or blue. 
And there are dispensationalists today who make a distinction between Jesus and the apostle. And what Jesus said is more authoritative than the apostles. That is wrong. We have that problem today. Another way, the Christ group, might, I think when I heard about the Christ group, we are of Christ, I think of King James only people. I have friends that are King James only people that are Christians. I've dialogued ad infinitum, ad nauseum, and they are committed. But it's kind of an elitist view that only the King James Bible is acceptable. No other translation is legitimate. Well, I said, well, what about the original Greek text? They don't want to talk about that. It's just King James only. And it is very divisive, by the way. It's drawn a line in the sand. If you don't believe King James only, then I can only have so much fellowship with you. You aren't pure enough. Those have been my experiences. So anyway, we need to be leery of that. Okay, here we go. I'm going to conclude with this. Today in our day and age, in the evangelical world, where we have schisms going on with slogan phrases, I am of blank, that is creating division in the church that we need to get rid of, dismiss it, and run from it whenever we see it. And that's forming cliques around popular evangelical leaders, teachers, preachers, uh, pastors. Here are some of the cliques I've had to deal with the time I've been a Christian. There's the Bill Hybels clique. That's in Chicago. There's the Rick Warren clique. Faction. There's the uh, Brian McLaren clique. There's the Mark Driscoll faction. There's the Tim Keller faction. There's the C.J. Mahaney faction. There's the Vody Bauckham faction. There's the John Piper faction. There's the Mark Dever faction. There's the John MacArthur faction. I go on and on. I love most of these men in terms of their teaching as pastors. I mean, I love them all, but most of these men are really good Bible teachers. And as a, I teach seminary up in Vallejo, and I, I see this in seminary students all the time. They are quick. I, I was a seminary once, seminary student once, so I can say that. When I was in seminary, I was a, a divisive, factious dude in terms of my allegiances of who the better preacher was. That just kind of comes with the territory. And so I see students doing that all the time, uh, saying, well, I like Piper. Well, I like MacArthur. Well, I, <laughs> it was the last quarter I taught. Uh, I had like 10 guys, and they were talking about their favorite preachers just for kicks. I'll just start up a little controversy. I said, so who's your favorite preacher? And one guy says... Uh, well, my favorite preacher is MacArthur. Uh, and then another guy says, well, my favorite preacher is Piper. And No kidding. And the third guy, who was a pastor, he said, well, actually, I like Piper and MacArthur because I, I believe in grace and truth. <laughs> Whoa. Wow. That was kind of funny. But anyway, it makes the point. So we need to avoid, avoid those factions and then when i teach a homiletics or preaching to the guys either at the seminary or in the church and i just emphasize especially the men at the seminary when you preach uh don't be an idol worshiper don't put these sinful men on a pedestal they don't belong it's not uh, some man's church it's jesus's church keep that perspective don't lose that perspective and when you're a pastor it's not your church it's jesus's church uh we need to believe the same thing and when you preach don't preach uh some man's opinion preach the bible and only the bible because many people will quote uh, authoritatively a man Piper said MacArthur said or whatever that's not right because I really don't care what some man said I want to hear what does the Bible say the Bible says when it comes to authority now, if you want to read from a good pastor an illustration because they're great teachers that's legit if it's helpful because they're helpful on a practical level for providing illustrations and they are wonderful teachers and they give us great Examples, But again, there's a fine line between 
quoting a man of God who said a great thing that's enlightening and helpful and practical so that people can apply it to their life versus quoting a man to validate the authority of that truth. And you should believe it because pastor so-and-so said that is wrong. You should believe it because God said it in his holy word. And with that, let's go ahead and look at Jude. And we're going to close with this passage. This is where our loyalties should be. So this is a great, a great divine reminder to recalibrate where our loyalties, to be, loyalties should be. It's to, to God, to the triune God of the universe, to God the Father, to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and to them alone. Now to him who was able... Oh, sorry, Jude, and then verse 24 and 25. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory. See, only one person deserves the glory. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen? Be the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank You for our time together and the opportunity we have to worship with the saints who, as you remind us today, are our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for adopting us into one spiritual family, all on equal footing before you, saved by grace. Thank you for that great reminder. God, use the words of the living Word of God today that we saw in 1 Corinthians to attend and even amend our thinking. And as a result, that our actions and our words would be changed from sin to obedience. And that we would indeed please You, Lord Jesus, by being peacemakers and not divisive people. And as a result, we know the promise is that You will bless us as a result. But God, we need Your grace. We need Your help. We need the ongoing, abiding comfort of the Holy Spirit. And we pray You would be gracious to attend. In that manner, we thank You. We give You all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.